Father God, we praise you because you're worthy of praise. We thank you that we are your creation. We thank you, Lord, that you in your goodness and your kindness to us that you made a way for us to have peace with you through your son. Thank you, Lord, that when we hated you and were rebelling against you and running as far away from you as we could possibly run in your kindness and your mercy, you intervened in our lives. And you have saved us. You've forgiven us all of our sins, past, present, and future. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your grace. You've given us all your precious promises. You've given us the hope, the reality of eternal life. And so now, Lord, I pray that in the meantime, we would, um, we would bow under your word because we love you and we would find joy in doing so. That we would be women who seek you and so this morning I pray that you would help us to quiet our hearts and minds and to um, open your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to do that and that we would, we would um, drink deeply with what you have to say to us this morning and that we would um, take those truths and apply them to our lives. We praise you and thank you for the work that you're doing in and through this body and in and through each and every one of these women. We thank you for the servants who faithfully serve in Wellspring Kids. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in the servants' hearts today and that you would work in um, those little ones' hearts and that you would draw them to yourself. And that they would, at an early age, come to know you. And Lord, that you would use that, that ministry mightily. Lord, so this morning we commit it to you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, for the opportunity to fellowship, and the opportunity to sit under your word, even as you use a weak and feeble servant like myself. So, Father, please give me words, strength, humility, and your grace. So, so have your way in us and be glorified this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, all right, it's good to see you this morning, and um, we, this morning we're going to talk about, we're still in Discipline 2, and we're going to talk about, um, the Discipline 2 is the home, and we're going to talk about bearing God's image in singleness and marriage. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're not going to go through the disciplines up front. We're going to be talking a lot about these disciplines throughout the lesson, and then we'll kind of wrap it up at the end. So you're not distracted thinking, wait, <laughs> I didn't get, I didn't do the disciplines. So um, first we're going to review what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in that lesson on biblical womanhood and bearing God's image as a woman. And we saw that increasingly a biblical view of women and gender is extremely countercultural. The biblical view of women and God's design for male and female is one that we can no longer assume is generally shared by our society. Um, those who don't have a biblical view are no longer on the radical fringe, but out there somewhere, but they're accepted by most. But what is most countercultural 
regarding biblical womanhood is where we looked for our standard. We looked to God and his word. That is a, a shocking and offensive declaration to the world we live in, that God has the right to define womanhood. God's word is not where our, our, our world really looks for anything. So today we're talking about bearing God's image in singleness and in marriage. And you know, our world just has as many unbiblical opinions about marriage and singleness as it does about womanhood and gender. There are just as many lies about marriage and singleness as anything else. And these lies can seep into our thinking if we don't know the truth as well. Lies like, have you ever heard this? Newlyweds are told, well, it's all downhill from here. You know, this is as good as it gets. Just wait. Or lies like um, married women are told they've lost their freedom. And yet single women are told they're missing out. Is a single person really a fifth wheel? Is a woman's life on hold because she's not married? No. None of those views are biblical. They're not true. They are lies. But you know, we're not of this world. And so the radical message that we are embracing when we look to God and his word to explain gender and marriage and singleness is, that, is this. God is the creator, and he has a right to rule what he has made. God's our creator, and he has a right to rule what he has made, and his rule is good. It's good. We're going to do a quick uh, review of what we saw in Biblical Woman in that lesson last time. And if you missed it, it's online. You can go and listen to it, and it might be helpful. But first we saw in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image. Male and female were both created to be God's image bearers. And then we saw that to understand what God's image is, we look to Jesus. In Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, we saw that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus existed in the form of God, but he took on the form of a servant. So the image of God is that of serving, it's not grasping for yourself, but of giving yourself away like a slave does. It's surrendering yourself. It's a self-giving love. Another way in which Jesus showed us the image of God was in his unity with the Father. In John 10:30, and you don't need to turn there, Jesus says, I and, and the Father are one. One, perfectly united, eternally joined in seamless unity. I kind of use that terminology a little bit this morning. So we can describe the image of God as this, as a seamless unity, and it's cemented with self-giving love. God's image is a seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. Because there is this self-giving that flows between the members of the Godhead. They're so unified that they can be spoken of as one. Each of the three members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they reveal the image of God to be this image of self-giving love. Each of the three, remember this, they manifest this self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and he gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. 
and the Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. And that unity and that self-giving love that God created, that, uh, that self-giving love that God created man to reveal about himself. That is what we're going after. But remember what we saw last time in Genesis 3. We're now on number 3 on your outline, actually, I think. <clears throat> As sin entered the world, and Adam and Eve became self-graspers. They no longer followed God, but instead they trusted in themselves. And because of their sin, because of their self-grasping, the image of God in them was obscured. And that's what we've all been plagued with ever since. So now let's turn to Romans 8.29. This is some good news in the midst of all of that. Romans 8.29. The beauty and the power of the gospel is that the ability for us to bear God's image is restored in Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he, he, meaning God, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God predestined us, believers, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. To be restored to being image bearers of God. Colossians 3.10 makes the same point. He says, we've put on the new self who's being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. That's what happens when a life is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When, when a rebel comes to repentance and faith in Christ, she's forgiven, she's uh, made a new creation. She has peace with God. She's freed from sin's tyranny, master and rule over her, and she's renewed. She's restored to displaying the self-giving love of Christ in her life, and she now lives for him in obedience and faith. In this mixed condition, as believers, not only does God have a right to rule in our lives, because he is the creator, but so much more because he's our savior, he's our Lord. And so why make this point when we're talking about bearing God's image in singleness and marriage? Well, it's important because, you know, we easily forget. We, for we forget whose we are, whose we are. We're forgetful people, and when we forget, well, we're a lot more likely to struggle to think biblically about our circumstances. We're more likely to listen to ourselves or to be informed by the world as opposed to talking to ourselves and to be informed by our Creator and our Savior in His Word. So let's remind ourselves whose we are. There's some references there on your outline um, under number four. And don't try to look these up now because we're just going to run through them. Titus 2.14 says, that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And 1 Corinthians 6 says that you're not your own. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And Romans 6 says that we're enslaved to God. And Jesus put it this way in Mark 8:34. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. And to take up our cross means to die. 2 Corinthians 5 helps explain that. 
says, for the love of Christ, we're in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they might, so that, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I mean, let that sink in. That's what our Savior did. And that's our call on our that's the call in our lives. We've died. We're not our own. We're to live for him alone. Not partly for God and partly for ourselves. That's not the call. It's being wholly devoted to the Lord in all things and in all circumstances. Anyone remember this book that asked the question that was out about 10 years ago on marriage? What if God's primary intent for your marriage isn't to make you happy, but holy? Remember that? That's a good question, but maybe a better one is this. What if God's primary intent for your new life in Christ isn't to make you happy, but to make you holy? All of life. You know, the truth is there's no greater joy than being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. No greater joy. Psalm 16.2 says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides, me, besides you. Psalm 16.11 says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27.4 says, that I'm, So that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 34.8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 73.28, But as for me, the nearness of, my, of, of God, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Without a doubt, there is joy. There is satisfaction for our souls in God himself. And following Jesus is a call to die and to live for him alone. And getting a firm grasp on that, on God's right to rule in our lives and in our circumstances, and his call for us to die to ourselves because we're, we're just not our own. We belong to him, and that's good. And he's the only true source of joy and happiness. And all of that helps us to joyfully embrace his purposes for us to bear his image, whether we're single or whether we're married. To find joy and contentment and even happiness in submitting ourselves to the Lord and to his design, and to his purposes, and to the roles he has for us, it's, it's a joyful thing. It's a good thing. I said this once before, and I'll say this again because I just love to be reminded of it. We will find freedom and joy not in casting off his design, but embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is knowing Christ and making him known. We must be women of God who embrace what God gives us to make him more visible. 
we were created to bear God's image, which is displayed perfectly in Christ. In Christ, But sin corrupted God's image in us, but Jesus restores us to that image through a relationship with him. Therefore, the greatest relationship is the relationship we have with Jesus. The greatest relationship. That's our greatest, it's our first and most important relationship. That is what we are to be most concerned with. This is the relationship that shapes our heart to be godly women and followers of Jesus as we live in this mixed condition and in this dark world. And you know, at times we may be single and at times we may be married. Everyone in this room has been single and many of us will be single again. Did you know that on average women live seven years longer than men? On average, so many of us in this room will be widows. So we all need to understand God's design, whether we're married or whether we're single. Understanding God's design for singleness prepares us to value singleness and to display Christ well in seasons of singleness, and it prepares us to make the most of opportunities that are unique to being a single woman And it also helps us appreciate and encourage women who are in this season. So all of us, all of us, all of us members of the body need to care well for one another, regardless of season of life. And also we need to understand God's design for displaying his image in marriage. So the way we think about marriage, the way we talk about marriage, the way we live out our marriage, is in a way that makes much of God's design for it. If you're single, it's important to know what God has for you if he does bring you marriage. We need to know what God's word says so we can encourage our, some of us, our grown children in their marriages. And we need to help friends esteem marriage. We want to be women who protect. All of us want to be women who protect and esteem marriage whether we're single or whether we're married. Remember, marriage is a temporary relationship. It ends when one of us dies. Marriage is not, it must not be the greatest relationship in our lives. Our tendency is to think that, you know, we need an, an additional relationship. We need Jesus, and then we need someone else whether we're married or single. If we're married, we think we need our husbands or our children to make us feel whole or loved or needed or appreciated. And if we're single, we might think we need to be in a relationship. Maybe we just need to find or pursue a relationship that'll fulfill certain perceived needs. We're tempted to think that this need is going to be met by a human relationship. And and that can be such a battle. I think we've all been in that battle. The whole time we're thinking that way, though, we are completely missing the fact that no human relationship was ever designed to satisfy that, which can only be in Jesus. Carolyn McCauley has uh, been a great resource. She's kind of an older woman. She's not as old as me, but she's still kind of up there in that category. And um, 
She's never been married, and she loves to talk about and encourage other women in light of her identity in Christ. And she quoted the secular magazine that says, Despite the conventional wisdom, being married boosts happiness only one-tenth of a point on an 11-point scale. Not very much, is it? And most people are no more satisfied with life after marriage than they were before. Why do you think that is? She comments on this by saying, we shouldn't be surprised. The mainstream study confirms what we read throughout the Bible. God has designed us to find our ultimate fulfillment in him. Not anything, not anyone he's created. Contentment and satisfaction in life aren't issues of marriage and singleness or singleness. They're issues of what? Somebody say it. They're issues of the heart. They're issues of the heart. It's about discipline one, right? That's why we talk a lot about it. Genuine love for Christ drives us to worship him and trust him for everything. And that is what Christ has called us to and, and, and enables us to do through our relationship with him. So I'm really talking about the principles in Discipline One. That's how we cultivate this greatest relationship with Jesus, our Savior, our Master, the lover of our souls. The relationship with the one, the only one, who has a right to rule our lives who truly loves us, who never leaves us or forsakes us, who offers us intimacy and security and hope, and prayerfully shepherding our hearts toward God through the word of God is how we participate in that renewal into the image of God in our lives and our own lives so that we can be more concerned with loving and serving others more than we are with how they're satisfying us. So what does that mean specifically for bearing God's image when we're single? Well, let's turn to John 17, and we're on 5A on your outline. So we're on 5A on your outline, and most of... Uh, most, if not all, of these principles apply more broadly um, than just to singleness. So it's important to know and apply these to our own hearts. But they do help us build a biblical perspective on singleness. So Jesus' prayer for unity in the body. What does Jesus pray for? On his last night, he's with his disciples on his last night and listened to his heart. Last night before going to the cross. Starting in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, and he's praying for us, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for our unity so that others may believe. And then in verse 22, he says, The glory which you've given me, I have given to them, and they, that they may be one, just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus prayed that we would be one, just like he and the Father are one. The oneness Jesus described as being in one another. You, Father, in you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's pouring out his heart to the Father, asking that we, the body of Christ, all of us, every last one of us, would be one. Because that's how the world can know something about him. Our unity, our oneness, reveals him. So, is it good for any of us to be Lone Rangers? To avoid fellowship with the body of Christ? Do you hear his prayer? Isolation is not for believers, whether single or married. Believers are saved into the body of Christ, and God makes himself known through our oneness and unity and connectedness and love and care and service and encouragement for one another. And in that, we get to display God's image and that seamless unity and self-giving love to a lost world. It's a big deal. Well, marriage isn't always better. I want to read you two verses and see if you can find a dilemma here. In Genesis 2.18, God says, It is not good for man to be alone. And then in 1 Corinthians 7.7, Paul writes, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, referring to a singleness. So which is it? Is it not good or is it good? For man to be alone? John Piper explains it this way by pointing out that two very significant events happened between these two verses. These two verses are separated both by the fall and the cross. So those two events, the fall and the cross, had an impact on the natural world order that was in place in Genesis 2. So that in some circumstances, it's better for man to be alone. It certainly was for Paul. Better for Paul to be alone than to be married, he thought, because he was more devoted to Christ. Does that make sense? In a pre-fall world, it wasn't good for man to be alone. But in our world, after the fall and after the cross, sometimes it is good for man to be alone in the sense that he doesn't marry. And knowing that God works all for the good of all who love him, we can be confident that when we're single, it is good. And when we're married, it is good. It's God's definition of good, which is to make us more like Christ. So let's move on to see on the outline singleness and marriage as gifts. And turn to 1 Corinthians 7, please, where Paul says some interesting things here. 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at singleness and marriage as gifts. And there can be some confusion about this. But let's read, starting in verse 1. 
Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And by that he meant not to marry in the culture of that day. A man would literally not even touch a woman to whom he wasn't married. And Paul is saying uh, it is good not to marry. And then in chapter 7, uh, starting in, ver- or in two, 2 through 5, he talks about marriage. And then he says in verse 6, But this I say by way of concession, not of command. So Paul wants to be clear that he's not commanding that people must get married. He underscores that in verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And Paul was single at this point. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul recognized that each man has his own gift. And what gift is he referring to? It's singleness. And it's marriage. Paul says they're each a gift. Obviously, marriage and singleness are not the same as um, spiritual gifts given at conversion by the Holy Spirit. They don't occur in the list of spiritual gifts we find in 1 Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians. God's our Father, and he gives good gifts to his children. And our Heavenly Father, who loves us more than we can comprehend, is at work every day lavishing us with his grace and grace is the root of the greek word for gift and he gives us one of two particular gifts every day today his gift to me is marriage and the day may come when his gift to me changes others may have today the gift of singleness from our loving father and that is the gift he chose for them today One day, they too may change, where he has a different gift for them. But both are gifts of God's grace. Now, thinking of both marriage and singleness as gifts might be a new perspective. So again, I want to share with you from Carolyn McCauley. Speaking of singleness, she writes, It's not a gift that we have to spend time trying to identify or even worrying that we may have forever. If we're single today... Not necessarily forever, but we do have it today. How we may feel about it, do I like being single, do I desire to be married instead, is not part of the question. The emphasis here is on a gracious God who gives good gifts and ultimately on his purpose for giving them. This gift is not an activity or a role, but a blessing. Like the free gift of eternal life that was given to us without any merit on our own. Singleness and marriage are God's grace gifts, his means for us to display his image in unity and in self-giving love with his body. So what are some of the unique ways that singleness allows us to display his image? What are the privileges of singleness? It's D on your outline. Well, we're already in 1 Corinthians 7, but let's look at 34. Verse 34 says, the woman who is unmarried, and this is a woman who used to be married, and the virgin, who is a woman who's never been married, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate, as, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. The single woman in Christ can be concerned about the things of the Lord and 
That feeds holiness, and that secures undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that's a privilege. When we're single, we have unique opportunities and availability as women who are caring for our own hearts, concerned with holiness. We can use our unique availability for undistracted devotion to the Lord. And the whole time we're doing that, there's nothing wrong with desiring marriage. It's a good desire, especially if your desire is to display God's image in that marriage. But sometimes God's plan for us is different than what we want, right? And so we trust him and trust our desires to him. We rest in what he has for us right now. And when we do that, we're guarding against letting that desire for marriage become an idol. If a desire becomes an idol, we set ourselves up for stumbling. Maybe it's into joylessness, discontentment, impurity, or disobedience of dating someone who isn't devoted to Jesus. So we have to guard and we have to trust and we have to help our sisters in Christ who are single do the same. All right, so we've looked at God's word and we've seen how essential our union with the body of Christ is and displaying God's image to the world. And we've seen that when we're single, it's a gift and a privilege. And all that being said, it may be really hard and it may be a challenge to view singleness as a gift and a privilege, right? It can be hard. It can be lonely. It can be awkward. It can be really painful. And there are even seasons of grief caused by hopes deferred. Sometimes when we're struggling, it, be, it can be hard to know, you know, is this okay to even grieve this? Or am I just, am I just feeling sorry for myself? Have I fallen into self-pity? And again, Carolyn McCauley writes, and you know, this is helpful in dealing with any kind of hopes deferred, too, like childlessness or a financial struggle, a wayward child, prolonged illness. So she writes that the most telling difference between self-pity and grief is our attitude toward God in the loss very real loss to have dreams deferred or die. Marriage seems so commonplace that to remain single when you desire otherwise truly can be a form of suffering. While those who grieve for a tangible loss, like death of a loved one, seem to work through it within a defined season. But there's a circular aspect to mourning extended singleness. Though we may be doing well from one holiday to the next, the cumulative effect of facing yet Another Valentine's Day, remember, those of you, Thanksgiving, Christmas alone can trigger the grief once again. And yet, she writes, the Lord would want to interrupt that pattern of mourning with the joy that overflows to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. How's that possible? Well, let's consider again the difference between grief and self-pity. Self-pity turns our gaze inward, focusing on ourselves. It says, I'm worthy of so much more. Why has this been withheld? It's a, it's, a, it's a response of pride. Therefore, it's accompanied by an inconsolable, demanding spirit that fuels the emotion. Self-pity leads us to assume the worst. Lord, don't you care? And if we find ourselves asking that question, we should be concerned. 
that we've let self-pity take root. True Christian grief says, like Jeremiah did in Lamentations, I remember my affliction and my wandering and the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. It doesn't ignore the painful circumstance. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. So though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. And she goes on to say that we care well for one another when we listen compassionately to one another's struggles. We ask wise questions to expose what we really believe about God and ourselves and remind one another what's true because of the cross and the reality of what lies ahead for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The bottom line is this. If the wonderful, glorious promises of heaven and all that's been secured for us in the manifold mercy found at the cross don't penetrate the fog of our grief, we can be sure self-pity has begun to harden our hearts. She concludes by saying, there's a vast difference between being told to get over it and being equipped with the truth that helps us vanquish both self-pity and grief. And you know, just as she responds to the challenges of singleness by pointing out the character of God and the word of God and meeting with God in prayer and the gospel, and our eternal hope, isn't that just what we all need to do in any circumstance? See, heart shepherding is heart shepherding. Circumstances change, but the answer doesn't. God doesn't change. Whenever the circumstance, learning to trust God and learning to find our contentment in Him and it, uh, is, is a discipline, and it takes practice, it's something we have to learn, continue to pursue, and continue to encourage one another in. So let's keep pursuing it and keep going. All right. Let's look at examples of undistracted devotion to the Lord. So back in 1 Corinthians 7.34, we saw that Paul wanted the church to value the privileges of singleness and in order to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And scripture provides a great cloud of witnesses that lived this out. And there are, there's a lot of variety. God does not have a cookie cutter for what singleness is supposed to look like. Ruth, she was, a, she was devoted to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she did hard work. She did physical labor in order to meet her needs. And, you know, it might surprise you to find that the Proverbs 31 woman listed, is listed as a role model for single women. But these are words from a mother to her son. She wanted this future ruler to know what to look for in a single woman to ensure that he would find an excellent wife. The passage describes the role of a wife, but her godly character is an example for all women. Take a look at that later if you'd like. And Tabitha, she abounded with kindness and charitable deeds. She made clothes for the widow. And Lydia was a successful businesswoman who served and extended hospitality to the body of Christ, even those like Paul who were being persecuted for Jesus' sake, putting her own reputation and household at risk. And Anna, she was devoted to prayer. 
fasting, thankfulness, and speaking to others about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. She was at the crucifixion. She was at the burial. She was the first one to see our risen Lord. She was also generous with her financial resources. And Mary and Martha were two sisters noted for their hospitality they showed to Jesus. So how did this diverse cloud of witnesses, of faithful single women, bear God's image, immunity, and self-giving love? Well, among many qualities, we saw a selflessness, service, mercy, diligence, hospitality, trustworthiness, generosity, prayerfulness, and a devotion to Jesus and his people. As a woman of God, no matter who you are and what you do, God has placed you there to display and tell the goodness of his design for women and the goodness of his salvation as you bear his image. And I see many, many women doing this in our body, and it is super, super encouraging. All right, let's look at um, number six on our outline. Bearing God's image as a married woman in Christ. Um, We see, we've seen how important our relationships are with the body of Christ, and I I hope it's becoming more and more clear that um, we all need to understand God's design both in singleness and in marriage because it gives us the opportunity to live out that countercultural truth that God does have a right to rule in our lives and that his design is good and that his word is the only trustworthy foundation for understanding who we are. Let's turn to Genesis 2. Now in Genesis 1... We see that God created man in his image, male and female. But to understand how marriage ties into that, we need to look at Genesis 2. And remember, this is before the fall. And since then, God has continued to unfold his redemptive plan. And we've already seen that in Christ we bear his image through our relationship with him and through unity with this church. Excuse me. But to understand God's original design for marriage, well, let's read beginning in Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Now remember back in Genesis 1, everything was good, right? So God's found something that is not good. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God points out to Adam that he's missing something, and then he underscores that what he's missing isn't going to be found among the animals. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
Adam needed a suitable helper, one who would, would be suitable to help him fulfill God's purpose for him. So God created the woman and he brought her to Adam. And we saw in verse 24, God's design for marriage from the very beginning, that the man and woman would be joined together and become one flesh. Marriage surpasses anything the animals could offer Adam in image bearing. There's no unity between Adam and the animals. There's a divergence. There's a huge difference. But the woman is suitable to live with unity with the man because she came right out of his body. So let's think about a parallel here. The first Adam was created in God's image and was given a bride, Eve, to help him display that image. But all failed miserably in sin. So Jesus, God's second Adam, and that's what he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, um, he is the image of God and he came and he gave him a bride. That's the church. Revelations 21.9 says, uh, calls it the bride of the lamb, to help him display his image everywhere. See the parallel between Adam and Jesus? Jesus is committed to displaying his image of that seamless unity and that self-giving love to the ends of the earth. And this relationship between Christ and the church is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians 5. So let's turn there, please. Ephesians 5. Now, Paul used this relationship between Christ and the church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. Now, none of us are in a perfect marriage, right? Marriage can be very hard, and we know it's sanctifying. But there's a bigger message that we need to understand. Read with me and listen to how often Paul refers to the church or to the body in the midst of his teaching about marriage. Starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. How? What? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This mystery is not husband and wife, but mystery. the mystery is Christ and the church. That's the unity that unity is mysterious. Verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Here Paul is teaching on marriage, and the whole time he's highlighting the church's relationship with Jesus. In eight out of ten verses on marriage, Paul's talking about Jesus and the church. 
He wants to shine the spotlight on this precious relationship between the bride and her husband, Jesus. So, get this. Marriage is about displaying the way God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him. That is to be unfolded in our marriages. Isn't it so much bigger than what we tend to think? Marriage has this incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing Christ's love relationship with his church. So what does that mean for a wife? What role does a wife play in marriage in displaying that? Ephesians 5.22, we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The wife displays the image of God in marriage by willingly yielding herself to the authority of God that he has placed over her and her husband cooperatively in a way that's helpful, being a suitable helper, being on the same team, being for him. Submissive literally means that you line yourself up under. It's how a wife is to posture herself under her husband's role. And sadly, there are a lot of misunderstandings and incomplete ideas about submission, and I've certainly had to grow in my understanding. But like it's all, um, like it's all about what I can't do, you know, rather than what I have the privilege to do. Or it's about behavior, you know, I'm just going to submit, rather than our heart. You know, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down on the, on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside, that kind of thought. Or that submission means that if there's a disagreement, I just have to give in. Or that if we've been sinned against by our husband, we shouldn't speak up at all. Or that we're not equal in value to God, and that we're doormats. All those kinds of things, just shallow thinking, incomplete, skewed ideas about this God-given call to submit to our husbands. It's good. It's a poor understanding of biblical submission, and it can lead very easily to, to a self-righteousness or a judgment or a joylessness, a lack of intimacy, lack of forgiveness, bitterness. We're called to submit to God and his plan to lead us through the authority he has placed in our lives through our husbands. And we need to recognize that our husbands have a weighty call. And we help them, not by taking over, not by coming up with our own plan, not by criticizing, not by being inactive, but by coming alongside and strengthening and encouraging and being for them, not against them, and praying for them by being a faithful sister in Christ. And if we train our hearts to understand submission biblically, it makes us humble and eager to do all that we can to be his helpmate. It means always wanting to see if there's a better way that we can free him up to be faithful to what God's called him to do. Even if your husband's not a believer, you know that the role he has to fill is challenging. And you can live with him in such a way that he's strengthened to fulfill those responsibilities. How can you help him have a good influence? 
as, as he possibly can on your kids? Are there ways we can be more diligent and fruitful in our homes? Again, I'll ask the question, but I keep asking myself first, wives, are we being lovable? Our husbands are called to love us like Christ loved the church. Of course, it's not easy. It's really not easy if you're redeemed living with someone who's not redeemed. It can be wearisome, and we're going to come back to that um, before we're done. But marriage can be hard. And sometimes it's hard because it exposes sin in our own hearts, right? But, God call, but God's call on husbands, is, it's not easy either. Think about what Ephesians 5 has given our husbands to do, to love us like Christ loved the church. And there's no days off, 24-7. It's a job that's never done. And a standard that is impossibly high to love us. Christ lived the church. So let that fuel in us a desire to display the image of our great Savior well by submitting to our husbands as to the Lord. Coming alongside him, helping, serving, dying to self because we belong to Christ and we serve Christ. It's how we get to selflessly portray the submissive church. Selflessly, because that's the image of God in Christ. Remember, he did not come to serve, but to give his life away. That's what service is. It's giving ourselves away. Jesus gave himself away, and wives, we selflessly give ourselves away in submissiveness. We portray the submissive church. All right, let's turn to 1 Peter 3. I really don't know where we are at this point. I hope you guys are keeping track. Anybody know? Near the end. We're near the end. Okay. It's not hard to understand why the church would submit to our God and our Savior Jesus who redeemed us, but it's harder to do when it comes to one sinner submitting to another, especially if your husband isn't in obedience or isn't walking with the Lord. The world would say that marriage is, you know, a two-way street, it's a 50-50 proposition. And so again, we need to look to God to see what God says. First Peter, starting in verse 1, says, In the same way, so what he's already doing is he's referring back to chapter 2 and Christ's example. In First Peter 2.23, he says, While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return, while suffering... He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges right, righteously. So Jesus submitted himself to the Father's hand in his suffering. And when he was sinned against, he did not sin in response. He was not concerned. Jesus was not concerned with defending himself. And then in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, In the same way you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And again, we see the command for wives to be submissive in this time to a disobedient husband in particular, because they might be won. This is powerful. It's powerful image-bearing submission that God has in mind. 
And it just might be his tool for actually winning a disobedient husband without a word by the behavior of their wives. Verses 2 through 4 describe this submissive behavior. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braided, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission is displayed in behavior that is chaste and respectful. And chaste means pure and holy and respectful, both here and back in Ephesians 5, is a reverent fear and honor that draws you nearer to your husband and leads you into humble, thankful appreciation of him because of the role as God placed, the, the role God has placed him in over you. We respect our husbands regardless of his actions and attitude, out of reverence for Christ. And we can absolutely trust Christ, that he is at work to lead us as we submit to and respect our husbands. And how can we do that? Well, verse 4 then tells us that this chaste, respectful behavior flows from the hidden person of the heart. It's not just acting submissive, submissive, it's a heart attitude. It's a big difference. It shouldn't sound, it should sound familiar again, right? This is another look at discipline, uh, discipline one and how um, that enables us to live out discipline two. How else will we ever possess a gentle and quiet spirit? We must shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word. And this passage points right back to the heart and the greater relationship with God that we must not neglect. And it underscores the call to submission, not only when our husband is walking with the Lord, but every bit as much when, husband, when the husband is disobedient to the word. The only time we do not submit is when we're asked to sin. Other than that, how a wife displays God's image of unity and self-giving love in a marriage. And it can be God's tool for winning the disobedient husband. Now, if we find any tension in hearing that, we need to stop and ask, where does that tension come from? It didn't come from Jesus, and it didn't come from God's word. It comes from our heart. Possibly the influence from the message of our culture or our society that doesn't want to submit to God in anything. And if we let ourselves be bombarded by the world and if not soaking ourselves in his word consistently, then we're going to struggle. We'll be tempted to adopt the world's view of marriage. You know, stay put as long as your desires and expectations are being met. But a God-centered view tells us to persevere in marriage because it brings glory to God. And it points a sinful world to a reconciling creator. And it displays God's image. So we must shepherd our hearts into into the presence of God through his word. We need to get his message to us so that we can stand firm against what a godless culture would want us to believe. We need to turn off competing voices. We need to bring our lives to his word. We need to bombard our lives with his truth so that we are ready to shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation holding fast 
the word of life. And you know, the truth will only shine more brightly the darker the world becomes. The world is getting darker. Our light needs to shine. Submission is a powerful, unifying, self-giving display of God's image to a lost, God-hating world. And it reflects who our God is and how he relates to us. And you have some other passages in your notes. There, Second Timothy and Acts. It's just, just great encouragement to be faithful and bearing God's image well in your marriage. Um, as we see how God used even a faithful mother and a grandmother to train and prepare Timothy for ministry, even when his dad wasn't a believer. So in wrapping up, let's t- take a quick look at some specific implications of God's design for us to bear his image in these different seasons. And we have this handout, so... Let's take a look at that. It starts implications of God's design in the discipline. We're just going to highlight a couple because we've already been through uh, a lot of them. But we can think of these in terms of the Wellspring disciplines. So let's talk about discipline one and discipline two first. Actually, we're going to talk about discipline two and discipline three first. In terms of discipline two, the home... It's on the back of your notebook if you need to turn there. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And implications of God's design for us to bear his image in singleness encourages hospitality and ministry in our homes, inviting others in, nurturing, shepherding, reaching out. None of those things are on hold for a single woman. Right? Part of how we cultivate that unity with the body and serve the body, and it's how we make the gospel known to the lost. So something that we all do, married or single, we don't wait until we have a home. We don't wait until we have a dining room table. We don't wait until we have dishes. Right? That's not what it's about. You know, you do what you can. You invite others in, and you be hospitable, and you care for others, and you let others care for you. Number five, God design, God's design humbles a single woman to seek the wisdom and protection of Christian parents and or Christian leadership like elders and small group leaders and other older women in the church. More likely, um, a single woman will be out in the world, you know, working or in school, and it's where she can be a light. And at the same time, it's where maybe she's more vulnerable to the influences of the world. So these leaders can be so helpful in in making the most of of, uh, the opportunities while helping her to be cautious about the dangers. We all need to be cautious about the dangers. Now in terms of uh, discipline three, God's design underscores the importance of relationships with the body of Christ in fellowship, service, and other expressions of the New Testament one another. In particular, it keeps small group involvement a priority. It's a great place to care for others as well as be cared for, to be cared for by others, spiritually and otherwise. And it challenges her to be prayerfully and intentionally living out biblical femininity and godliness and holiness and industriousness with a gentle and quiet servant's heart in every sphere of influence, their home, school, work, and church. And many of these are the same for married. So what are some implications for God's design for displaying his marriage, his image in marriage? Well, God's design, number three, under D2, God's design sweetens every act of humble service in marriage. Again, whether we're married to a believer or not. If 
when we understand God's purposes for marriage, we have the opportunity to serve our spouse and give ourselves um, and give of ourselves. It's no longer some kind of joyless task for which we expect to be appreciated or to get something in return. Our old self-grasping and demanding kind of thinking has been crucified. New things have come. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Jesus and we live for others. And we do these humble acts of service for one another as we live that way. Um, it makes God more visible because that's what the Godhead does. They empty themselves for one another and they serve one another. And for those who are not currently married, God's design excludes marrying or otherwise entering into a close relationship with a man who is not in Christ or to whom should, uh, she would be unwilling to biblically submit. When you see God's design, it makes perfect sense. I mean, why would we unite ourselves with one who rejects reflecting the self-giving image of God? It's the highest purpose for marrying so a husband and wife together can be united and can sacrifice themselves in such a way that it displays Christ in the church. Then uniting ourselves with a self-grasper defeats that purpose. And if the wife's role in that image bearing is to submit, or the wife's role is to submit, so we must not enter into that kind of relationship with a man to whom she would not. On the other hand, if you are married to a man who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, God's will for you is to display Christ to him and to your children as you serve them and as you treasure them in a way that flows out of what his transforming power of the gospel is doing in your own life. What a kindness of God to your family, to place you in a, as a living testimony to his redeeming work right there in front of them in your household. This is true for anyone living with those who don't believe. You get to joyfully follow Christ and glorify him by loving them. And the world gets to see the image of Christ in you as you do that. That's so like our Savior because he, he loved us when we were lost, right? And so you do that. You love. You love lost people in your home with that same love with which Christ has loved you. And number five, God's design restricts consideration of divorce to only those cases where it's biblically permissible. And even at that, it's only a last resort after one has exhaustively and earnestly sought restoration. You know, there's probably not one of us in this room that's not been directly or indirectly impacted by divorce. But if we understand God's purpose in marriage, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm one. It will help keep us. I didn't, I didn't cry earlier. <laughs> it will help keep us from basing our opinion about divorce on circumstances, personalities, experiences. It drives us to treasure marriage as something which God designed to display something special about himself. We need to treasure marriage because God treasures marriage. Divorce is one of the most 
hostile statements we can make against God. Because divorce says, the picture marriage reflects about God is something I'm willing to shatter. Believers who embrace God's purpose in marriage will work and work until the end to save their marriage. To say it differently, we work throughout all of our marriage to save our marriage as God does, to recommit over and over, recommit ourselves frequently to God's exalted purpose, because then marriage has a purpose beyond ourselves. So what about divorce in our past? Divorce is not a sin that's bigger than what Christ accomplished on the cross for guilty sinners. Knowing how much God values marriage does give us reason to grieve over divorce. However, first and most, we need to look at it in light of the cross. Whether it's your divorce or someone else's, parents, spouse, nothing can separate believers from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate a believing child parent, a sister, who's impacted by divorce from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Remember his grace realities? God's wrath has been poured out on all sin for all who believe. There's not a drop left, <laughs> praise God, in his cup of wrath. All's poured out on the Son on our behalf. It's empty. There are consequences for divorce. There are consequences for any sin, whether we sin or um, where we've been sinned against. But as a believer, we can rest and we can be confident that our loving God compels even those consequences to work for our good. Do you believe that? It's a good thing to remember. Regardless of our season, God's design underscores the importance of relationships with the body of Christ. We're talking about ministry now, number six. In fellowship, service, and other expressions of the New Testament one another's, and it keeps small group involvement a priority. Singleness with a biblical purpose will strengthen the church. Marriage with a biblical purpose will strengthen the church. We need the church. Marriage needs the church. As we all fulfill our call in discipline one and discipline two, we see just how important, how important it is to remind one another of our biblical purpose and his design for us to bear his image regardless of our season of life and to encourage one another to live that out. So we've taken a good look at what God's word says about his design and about his purpose for us as women his design for us to live as women, bearing his image in the body of Christ, in seasons of singleness and marriage. We've seen that in Christ, we are called to die to ourselves. We've seen that real satisfaction and joy is found in God himself. We've seen again and again how central discipline one is. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God. 
through his word, and in particular, the gospel. Because it's the way we cultivate the most important relationship of all, the one we have with Jesus. And that's what fuels our faithfulness in bearing his image. So be purposeful. Shepherd your hearts with God's word. Shepherd your thinking with truth about your season of life. Pursue unity with those in your household and those in our church. Pursue it. Work for it. Because, because we have the amazing privilege of bearing God's image and declaring the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's why we do it. And that's why we're here. Our purpose at Wellspring is to equip and encourage one another to do just that. To shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that we live gospel-transformed lives in every season of life. Thus strengthening, strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we long, help us to long more, to live out your gospel purposes in our life in order to glorify you and strengthen your church. Help us, Lord, in every season of life, life and help us to care well for, for one another. And to remember, Lord, that you are creator. You have created us. You have a right to rule what you've made. And your rule is good. So as we go forth into our discussion time, Lord, I pray that we would be encouragers to one another. And we would spur one another on to love you more. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>